Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome to Night Light. Uh, thank you for joining us for our super special show tonight. Uh, Barbara's not doing a ventriloquist impersonation of me, and tonight's show isn't a mirror image of our normal Tuesday night roles. Um, need to wish Angela Baby Steps a happy birthday. I forgot uh, she'd call me. A very bad man. Uh, Je- Jeff really got uh, wedged behind the paneling last week. Um, I told Barbara not to do remote viewing of Guilford, Coventry, East Barnsley, Pompano Beach, or London in 1347 to observe Chaucer at his first birth or his first day of first grade. And she came back with a plague. So, uh, you know, to make up for uh, the rescheduling that Jeff caused, uh, we're doing a show Thursday, too, from 10 to midnight. Our, our guest is Mark Dewisiak, and he will be taking us to Shawshank Prison. And he'll also be discussing some Twilight Zone information, too. Um, Ken Quiet Hawks paraphrase of Nightlight's themes of unicorns to UFOs is accurate for tonight's show. Our guests are the ones who made us believe. Uh, so I just wanted to thank Ken, and I don't want him to send me to the cornfield. Uh, Nick Parisi is returning to discuss the Twilight Zone at 60 conference, of which he is the organizer. And it's going to be held on October 4th and 5th in Binghamton, New York. And his preeminent biography of Rod Serling is entitled Rod Serling, His Life, Work, and Imagination. He is also on the board of directors of the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation. And also joining us for the first part of the show, we have... And Serling, uh, and she should be able to provide us insights into 
the Twilight Zone and its creator. Uh, she was an early education, uh, early childhood education uh, teacher, and has not surprisingly uh, become a successful author. Her, as I knew him, my uh, dad Rod Serling won the uh, Killer uh, Nashville Silver Fauchion Award for Best Memoir Biography in 2015. She has adapted two of her father's teleplays for an anthology, uh, The uh, Twilight Zone, The Original Stories. She is also a member of the uh, board of directors of the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation. So welcome, Anne and Nick. Thanks, Mark. Thank Hey, you're welcome. So, um, and you wrote the foreword to Nick's wonderful biography of your dad. Um, you know, as you know, you, you, know, you worked with Nick on the you know this project. It, uh, what did you learn about your dad that? You didn't know. Well, I knew he was a prolific writer, but I think reading Nick's book, reading Nick's book, I learned just how prolific he was. I mean, Nick did such a complete history; it was mm-hmm. uh, so impressive. And I think just the right person to to do it. Yeah, it, it's it, Nick's book is comprehensive and you know we're going to get into you know parts of the book that uh you know really illuminate how how far reaching your dad's career was and you know we'll we'll, we'll save that for when he uh, is on with us for about an hour before we bring on our uh Third guest, but you know, you know, what are some of the long-term uh, goals for the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation? Well, you know, the, the foundation, as you know, was started by my dad's classmates and um, and his teacher Helen Foley, who had who he had a great deal of respect and adoration. I would go so far as to say. And it's just a way to promote, you know, the legacy. And uh, they have have some contests where people can write opening and closing narrations of the Twilight Zone. So in a way, it's sort of a platform for writers too, I think, or uh, mm-hmm. people that are interested in my dad. So it's it's a great foundation with some really terrific people. Yeah, we we try to, you know, we try to, uh, you know promote not only Rod Serling's work but but his legacy as a as a human being as a, as a humanitarian as as a um, a politically minded person as a uh, a a, ch- a charitable person um, so we try to keep that in the public eye as well um, mm-hmm. through what we do and and we're trying to do you know there are several you know um, you know several projects or you know dreams we have in, in terms of uh, you know, promoting Rod Serling, especially in Binghamton, New York. I mean, Binghamton was Rod Serling's hometown, and he, he was, you know, famously fond of, of his hometown. And, and we, we still think that the town hasn't quite uh, 
from you know uh, honored him as much as it should. Uh, so we're you know we're working on trying to get a statue built of Rod Serling somewhere in Binghamton. Um, we're working on you know things like that. We'd love to have a Rod Serling museum in Binghamton. So we we have some pretty lofty goals for for some things, but I, I think eventually we will get there. Yeah, that the museum is something that my husband was quite interested in doing as well. He's an architect and actually did a model, but it's you know it, there's a lot of politics, so it's been difficult to launch that. But I, Nick, I agree, it would it would just be terrific if we could get that going. Yeah, it would be tremendous. And and when you were growing up, and you know the. Twilight Zone was on TV and you know, people talking about it years later. Did you have a sense of your dad's importance or did you just see him as dad? And, you know, it was kind of, you know, just like, a, yeah, like you, you really didn't put the – Two together, like you know, some people uh, people may do when they look at you know, their children, and you know, they look at you know what their dad ha- has been doing for millions of people. I think he was really just my dad, and uh, I mean, I knew from a pretty early age that he was a writer, but I didn't know exactly what he was writing. Um, Oh, probably until I was about seven or eight because, and I wrote about this in the book because a mean kid on the playground asked me one day if I was something out of the Twilight Zone. (laughs) And I had no (laughs) idea what that meant. So I went home and asked my father and he, he explained that he wrote for a series. It was a little too old for me, but uh, whatever explanation he gave at that time sufficed. And I, the first episode that I ever saw was uh, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. And I, was, I actually watched that with my dad at our cottage, and I was pretty shocked to look from the television to my father to think, oh, my God, this is scary stuff that he does, even though he didn't write that. Richard Matheson did. Um, <laughs> it was, you know, the, the image that you saw was, was so entirely different than – the dad at home, the dad I knew. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, 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 you know, when, when you know, your dad's, you know, and he said he's a prolific writer and, you know, while preparing for the show, you know, I watched some of the uh, YouTube interviews you know nick's uh posted them as well like you know the mike wallace one and you know he, he'd say you know, he's writing you know 14 hours a, a day you know, you know where was he right you know was he did, did he have a, a office in the house and you just heard yeah you know, that uh typewriter keys clicking or uh you know there's the at one point, he was using the dictaphone. You know, what what was his you know, routine when he's write, you know, he was writing? Well, originally, his office was uh, downstairs in the house, and then he built a study out in the yard. Um, and, 
yeah, he, he started, when he first started writing, he, he used a typewriter. He was a very quick on, with two fingers. And then he, he did use a dictaphone and would act out all the parts, um, much like he did when he was in radio. He got up very early, went out into the study, and it was clear that when he was working, you know, we shouldn't bother him. But I never felt that my dad was inaccessible. And uh, even though he said on that uh, Wallace interview that he worked 12 hours a day, again, I, you know, he, I really felt that he was quite present. We, when I would come home from school, we'd play basketball. <laughs> Okay, that's that's interesting. So, uh, if you know, he came in, you know, for lunch or dinner. Uh, you know, what were the conversations like? You know, is he talking about aliens or just you know, he he just get away from that for a little bit and just you know talk about you know last night's Yankees game or. Well, the the person that you're imagining it was entirely different from the person at the dinner table. My dad was, and I've said this a lot, but it's true. He was brilliantly funny. He was a practical joker, and uh, I know that my mother uh, had a. Well, they both had a great deal of respect for the Kennedys, and I think the Kennedys, the Kennedy kids, used to bring a, a news topic to the dinner table, and my mother wanted us to do that. It didn't work out so well. But uh yeah, it was it was very he was very, very different at home. There were things that I knew he was quite passionate about, like prejudice, and I remember vividly him talking about that. And ironically yep. his his first dose of prejudice came from his own people when he was uh blackwalled from a Jewish fraternity for dating non Jewish girls. Hmm. It, when you know we we uh, look at chapter twelve of Nick's book, yeah, he he gives us uh, several uh, quotes from your dad, uh, like. One year after the Twilight Zone goes off the air, they'll never remember who I am. Uh, you judge good writing by its lasting qualities, and nothing I've written in my life, and and that spans 24 years of professional writing, will ever be remembered 100 years hence. Um, while we're you know we're 60 percent through through that hundred years. Um, it's maybe those couple quotes are about the only time uh, your dad was uh, wrong, but yeah, you know, it does sound like he he was just being a very critical artist. Yeah, uh, was he? Did, did your dad really? Uh, think that you know he 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 wouldn't be remembered for his his contributions to literature. Well, I think the fact that he said it um, 
indicates that he may have felt that way. I, I know that he, there was a quote that he said he wanted, uh, if, if he could just be remembered as a writer, that was sufficiently an honored position for him. Uh, I think he was proud of um, many of the things that he wrote, but perhaps he thought it was fleeting. I don't know. I can tell you that he would be so honored and surprised to know that we're even having this conversation all these decades later. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's that's enough uh, right there to you know, kind of kind of wrap the show after just fifteen minutes, and that's you know just uh, really all inspiring. But you know that's uh, and to hear that from you, but yeah, you know, it's just yeah, yeah, like what you were saying about the. Uh, you know, a prejudice that your dad experienced at one time, and you know, uh, yeah, developing that into several uh, more uh, yeah, Twilight Zone episodes, and yeah, you, know, uh, you know, going on the lecture circuit. Uh, Speaking about it in in the sixties and seventies, it's just really amazing to get your insights and Nick really develops that throughout his book as well. And when you return to Binghamton for like we got together last year. Uh, for for the conference, um, you know, how does that feel to you know come back to where your dad grew up and you got to high school and uh, you know the house you know your grandparents' house where he grew up in the uh, nearby park? Uh, are you glad to return? Oh. Was he glad, or um, are, 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 are you glad to return to Binghamton? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing to be able to see these places that meant so much to him and became a huge part of, for instance, walking distance, you know, some of his scripts. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and, and that people remember him it's, and honor him and, and celebrate his work. It's It's... And, and he really did. He really did. Uh, you know, he went back to Binghamton himself every time. You know, every year. And can speak to this. You know, when they would, when he would come back and go to the lake on Cayuga Lake, he would take the opportunity to go drive to Binghamton and drive to his old hometown and and see those things and see his old his old house and everything. So he he never uh, cut the tie to Binghamton. He was always drawn back to it. And uh, and his his boyhood home is is there and pretty much looks you know like it did when he was there and. And that that park is still there, and the, and the carousel is still there with the same horses that he rode when he was a kid, and his high school is standing in the same spot. So, so you can get that you know walking distance Willoughby kind of feeling from the place that that it hasn't hasn't in some ways hasn't quite moved on since since 1942. You know, in, in those in those ways anyway. Yeah, it was it was an annual pilgrimage. Every summer when we'd come east, he would take that drive back just like walking distance. Also, uh, 
Uh, the, the night gallery up, tearing down Tim Riley's bar. That was another one. That, well, he, he told the college audience that he had a propensity to write about the past, and I, I personally think those are his best his best scripts. Yeah, and you know, one of the themes from last year's conference is. Um, mirror image with the bus station in Binghamton and the you know, what's now the Boscoff uh, department store downtown. So he, he you know, there, you know, it wasn't just you know, um, yeah, you know, the carousel from the park. I mean, he he uh, included a lot more of you know, what he knew from the town in. Uh, several of the the episodes. Well, a, a, a part of this was that my father's father died when my dad was overseas, and even though the war was over, uh, my father didn't have enough points to come home, and he couldn't go to his father's funeral. So there was that. He didn't get the closure, and so there was you know grief that carried on throughout his life. So to be able to go back and, and, as Nick said, drive by his old house and go to the carousel and touch these places meant a great deal to him. And you mentioned um, you know, the first episode you saw was you know, Nightmare 20,000 Feet. Uh, uh, what's your favorite episode? Well, uh, again, I, I like the ones where he's going back in time, so uh, to a more idyllic place. So Willoughby, uh, in Praise mm -hmm. of Pip, was one that I, I hadn't watched many until after my dad died, and, and it was mostly at that point to see him rather than the than the episodes. But I was quite amazed to watch in Praise of Pip and see that. He used some of the dialogue that my father and I used together. Who's your best? Who's your best buddy? Uh, so that was quite special. So uh, uh, Death had revisited. That was a hell of an episode. I thought. Mm -hmm. Walking distance. I, I don't know if I said that one. Well, and, and are, are you uh, a character in any of the? Episodes. <laughs> That's an interest. I hope not. <laughs> well, you... in the Hitchhiker one, but that that was based on a short story. He just changed the name. But, uh, I I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> he named several characters, man, but I I don't think anything yeah. based on you. And <laughs> that little that little girl did ask if you were something out of the Twilight Zone, so maybe maybe you were. That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, Mark. Let me, let me, if I can, just real quick. I want because uh, I'm just looking through my through my book. I, I because you, you you brought something up. I just wanted to, just in case Anne didn't read this 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 passage or whatever. Just, let me read you this because this is from uh, they're tearing down Tim Riley's bar. Um, well, okay. not from, but this is this was Rod Sterling talking about that particular episode in Binghamton, and and this was from a class that he taught in uh, in California, um, very, very in 1975. I mean, this was very shortly before he was gone, and um, this is what he said. He said in 1945, when I got out of the service in Binghamton, New York, 
I'm walking down the street called Main Street, and there was a little restaurant called Dinty Moore's where my ball club was the high school. We used to meet and have hamburgers and drink beer at night. Only the front facade of the building had been left. They were tearing it down. And I recollect in that somewhat bittersweet moment, slightly lacrimose and very hungover from considerable drinking, a terrible swelling feeling of both self-pity and of a kind of betrayal, that here was one anchor that I had, having been overseas, that I could recapture by coming back by way of familiarity and reminiscing, and they were tearing it down. And I felt somehow that a piece of my life, a fragment, a portion, had been flaked off and had been denied to me. I thought often in the ensuing years about that moment because it was a tough moment for a lot of us, traumatized as we were by what had occurred in our lives. But it wasn't until a moment of depression some 20-odd years later when things weren't going so hot for me that I recollected that moment, and that's when I wrote the script, uh, Tearing Down to Morales Bar. This is not to say that it, is, that it is in any way autobiographical, but what, much of what this guy hungers for, I hunger for, and I think that's a part of the syndrome of age. Uh, you know, so there's a couple of lessons in there. You know, one is as a writer, you know, never throw anything away in terms of even uh, emotions and thoughts. I mean, he had this thought 20 years earlier and it occurred to him and said, you know, I think I'm ready to write that script now. Uh, and it's an example of, yes, of course, he, he took these autobiographical uh, things and they inspired, uh, they inspired fiction. And that's, that's the way it works. And so this was very, very directly uh, inspired by Binghamton and by his time coming back after the war and realizing that, you know, he'd been denied something of his past that he should have should have had. And, and yeah, just um, you know, follow follow up with you know what Nick just uh, read to us. It, you know, you. And you start uh, the forward to next book with with the uh, eulogy, uh, Dickberg's eulogy, and you, know, you, you state that uh, Dick said, and, and because he and your dad uh, came to us with love, uh, seeking our love. Um, it, I think with uh, some of the examples that you know, we've talked about with you know uh wanting to reverse uh you know the prejudice and it it, it, it uh you know, the, you know the you know the uh you know, j- just the uh joking and uh, practical jokes and um it, it it really does seem like there was a lot of uh, love that exuded from your dad. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and it came through in his work. Uh, you know, it's I, I say I you know I say this all the time, man. I don't I don't know of another writer who who wore his heart on his sleeve as much as your dad did. And 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 I think that's one of the things that endears him to so many of us that he he was unafraid to, to wear his heart on his sleeve when it came to his work. And you saw right. it obviously outside of his work. Right. And because he dealt, you know, with human issues, so many people can relate to so many of the themes and what he was writing. And, uh, you know, he, he told the college audience once that I think he, the question he was asked was, what do you want on your tombstone? And, and he said just that, that he'd left friends, and when I finally was able to go to the grave, 
somebody had written that on a piece of masking tape and attached it to the flag on, on the grave, and it, uh, it pretty much knocked me out because he did leave friends. And, you know, at the end of the day, what, what, what a great legacy that is. And he left friends that he never met. <laughs> and it goes on and on. So. Yeah, uh, and, and that's why we're getting together next next month. And yeah, and, and you're going to uh, be at the conference. Uh, or are, are you doing another presentation? Uh, there's a panel. I'll let Nick speak to that. Okay. Yeah, the one one panel we have planned for Anne um, is on Saturday afternoon. Um, Anne and um, well, it's uh, it's we're calling it Remembering Rod. So we're um, going to have a panel with the people who knew him, uh, whatever people we can get together who actually knew the man, uh, Anne included, of course, and just to reminisce and just to pay tribute uh, for at least an hour and hopefully have uh, you know, put, you know, uh, participation from the audience as well, uh, just to share memories and, 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 and feelings about, uh, about the Twilight Zone and about, uh, and about the man. I, I just wanted to add also there's a program in Binghamton where all the fifth graders watch the Twilight Zone. It's called the, uh, it's the Fifth Dimension Program, and, and they learn about all these themes, you know, scapegoating and prejudice and... Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, it's been going on mob mentality, et cetera. And it's been going on for 12 years, and it's it's really an extraordinary program with some very uh, special kids and gifted teachers. And one of the teachers talked a few years ago about showing the episode the monster uh, the monsters are due on Maple Street, and she asked the class who are the monsters, and she said the entire class stood up. So again, you know, these are pretty advanced fifth graders that really get these messages, and I really believe my, this would have been my father's greatest accolade. He he would have just been okay. And and the fact that it's in Binghamton, his hometown, makes it even more special. Mhm. That's a nice nice legacy to leave. And. Yeah, and you, uh, I know you, ha- you know, ha- have to go about now. Did, uh, did you want to say any, you know, uh, c- concluding remarks? You want to you know, stay on for another couple more minutes? Uh, you know, it's uh, up up to you. Well, I. I, I don't. I think I. I would like to say thank you for you know honoring my dad and Nick and uh, I can't stay on any longer because I have a date with my granddaughter to FaceTime. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much, Mark. Oh, t- thank you, Anne. You know, look forward to seeing you next month, and you know, we'll continue the conversation uh, then. And uh, you know, I don't want to hold you up from you know. Family event, so uh, you know uh, we will talk next month, and Nick and I will uh, resume for the next hour. Sounds good. Thanks so much. Nice talking with you. We'll see you soon.
Bye, Ann. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, Nick. Um, let's see. What? Let's um, get more into your book. And, you know, what? One of the things I've really enjoyed about your book is, you know, like Ian said, it's just really comprehensive. You know, it, you have you know little uh, you know write-ups about each episode of uh, the Twilight Zone. And it's probably what uh, intrigues most. Uh, writers but you know before you get into you know like the twilight zone section you talk about uh playhouse 90 and it's really interesting uh, and I, I like that uh you know reading the liner notes and c- cds and you know you you see where all, all you know all these bands were you know like sharing the studios at the same time well it, you know it's like uh, uh playhouse 90 was like that where all these uh uh people who became really big names uh maybe in the later 60s or uh 70s were all getting their uh, start with these you know, pioneering TV shows, and you, know, you talk about uh, uh, you know Rod's writing some of the scripts and you know, the, the director of the episode is uh, you know John Frankenheimer. Well, yeah, you know, they're going to uh, work together. Uh, on seven days in May, and then John you know, John is uh, uh, di- di- uh, you know what about the next movie he does is you know the Birdman of Alcatraz, and and you get Telly Savalas in, in there, and you know T- Telly is. Uh, you know, in one of the Twilight Zone episodes with, talk, you know, the talkie Tina. Uh, so, so you, you get all these, like, uh, uh, Playhouse 90 and, you know, some of the early Twilight Zone uh, connections. And you, you can kind of start to, uh, seeing where their careers are developed or emerging out, out of these shows. Yeah. And it's you know you you really place a lot of importance, and a lot of people probably don't realize what was going on at that like late fifties, uh, right before the Twilight Zone starts. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the ideas I had behind writing the book, one of the things that really made me write the book, was that I wanted to address Rod Serling's career in this way, in a, in a comprehensive, complete way, mm-hmm. to just go right from the very beginning and start from there and, and give people a real sense of what these shows 
the particular stories were about, what each particular story that Rod Sterling wrote, what the stories were and what they were about, and give them a sense of also the series itself, what the series, how the series kind of tied into the television landscape of the time, and just be able to give people a sense of the uh, evolution of Rod Sterling as a writer mm-hmm. and also of television as, as a medium, uh, because he started writing on shows that you know if you watch them now you know they would look terrible you know some of them and some of them still look, still look pretty good but um i'm talking about well before playhouse 90 i'm talking about the early, you know early early stuff but um so to give people an idea of that stuff because again there's been a, there have been enough books written about the twilight zone i mean how much how many more books can we have about um you know synopsizing twilight zone episodes so i didn't want to do that although i you know, I do it to some extent in the in the Twilight Zone section of the book, but I wanted to do that for other series. And and when we get to Playhouse 90, as you mentioned, yeah, Playhouse 90 was, you know, it was the crown jewel of the CBS network at the time. It was really, it was the most prestigious show on television, bar none. It was not, you know, not a question. It was the first live 90-minute weekly dramatic series on television. And who did CBS get to be essentially the head writer of the show? Rod Serling. He was, he was... Um, the, at the top of the heap long before the Twilight Zone and kind of Playoff 90 just kind of cemented it. So he wrote uh, the first two episodes and the second one just happened to be Requiem for a Heavyweight, which was a gigantic hit. And he happened to write the last, very last episode, which is a show called In the Presence of Mine Enemies, which is a brilliant piece of work. And in between, he wrote seven others and he wrote 10 episodes of the show. And Playhouse 90, yeah, you, you get John Frankenheimer directing several episodes. You get uh, a, a, a plethora of, of, of stars on, on Playhouse 90, Jack Palance and, uh, you know, Art Carney, Jack Klugman, uh, you know, Charles Lawton, all, you know, all these you know, big names of the time. And you didn't generally see those big names as far as actors go on television at that time before Playhouse 90 because, you know, television had kind of a competitive relationship with, with motion pictures at the time. It wasn't kind of, it was, it was absolutely was competitive and see the, uh, you know, uh, motion pictures, the motion picture studios were afraid that television was cutting into their audience and they wouldn't let their actors do television. You know, it was, first of all, it was seen as a step down for them. If you were a movie star, you really didn't want to go slumming on TV. That was the thinking at the time anyway. And, and so the, and, but the movie studios themselves didn't want their actors doing TV because they would be, you know, it's like fraternizing with the enemy, you know? So, so, but when Playhouse 90 came along, it was so prestigious and the writing was so good and the directors were so good. And it was also shot live in Hollywood, not in New York, in Hollywood. So they would have to have the proximity to Hollywood. So to the Hollywood stars. So they were able to get all of these, you know, big name actors. Vincent Price was on, you know, was on the first episode of, of Playhouse 90, you know, so, you know, so they were able to do that. So you had some really great productions, production values on Playhouse 90. And it's, it's kind of the, you know, um, you know, if anybody asked me what, you know, what's a watch of Rod Sterling outside of the Twilight Zone, I'd start him on Playhouse 90 because for me, the 10 episodes that he wrote for Playhouse 90, had seven of them are great, you know, and the other three are good and worth watching too, you know. So, so there's just some amazing work that he did for that for that show. And you know, you draw our attention uh, to another series that, as you know, the Twilight Zone is coming to a conclusion. That Rod uh, wrote some really good episodes for uh, the Bob Hope presents the Chrysler Theater. I was like, I, 
I, I'm sure I, I I didn't realize that until you know, I, I don't remember, you know, I wasn't even born when the show was a- airing, but uh, uh, you know that yeah, you know, it's just like w- one of those things that uh, most people probably aren't don't even remember, and you know here you're uh, making us not forget that. Yeah, there's some important contributions that Rod's making uh, right after the Twilight Zone, and you know he's also doing uh, you know writing for uh, Seven Days in May all at the same time. Yeah, it's, it's it was pretty incredible when you think about the you know the amount of work he was doing and the amount of good work that he was doing. You know, all, all at the same time, really, as you said, it's. Uh, Bob Pope presents the Chrysler Theater. That is certainly like one of the lost, you know, the lost uh, portions of Rod Serling's catalog. Nobody's heard of the series, and to my knowledge, none of the episodes have been released commercially or anything. Um, but Rod Serling wrote five episodes for the show. They're all an hour long, and they were all written pretty much even during the Twilight Zone, the fifth season of the Twilight Zone. They were they were uh, a couple of them aired during the fifth season. In fact, one of them aired on the same night that. An episode of Twilight Zone first aired. I am the night color me black, aired at the same on the same night as a slow fade to black on the Chrysler Theater uh, that Rod Sterling wrote for that for that series. And and the slow fade to black is the, the best best episode that he wrote for Chrysler Theater and one of the best things he ever wrote. So so on the same night you had two different shows by Rod Sterling on on TV, and that wasn't the only time that that ever happened. But it was just interesting that that happened during the Twilight Zone's run. But but yeah, so so he wrote these five episodes. And the, and the point I make in the book is that, you know, in the, the fourth season of The Twilight Zone, the, the fourth season were, you know, hour-long episodes. And the best hour-long shows that Rod Serling wrote during that period were not for The Twilight Zone. They were for the Bob, Bob Hope Presents the Chrysler Theater. Uh, he won his final Emmy Award for an episode of that called um, It's Mental Work, which is an adaptation of a short story, um, which is great. Uh, but for my money, the, the next one, or, uh, you know, Slow Fade to Black with Rod Steiger is leaps and bounds better. It's a, it's, it's a, and it's basically lost. It's available at the, at the Paley Center in New York City. I mean, if you wanted to go in and sit down and watch it, you could, but it hasn't been released anywhere. And it should be because that's that's really a great piece of work. And he and the other episodes that he wrote for it are pretty good as well. I mean, those those two are really really good, and uh, the other three are good. So uh, so yeah, it's a, a lost piece of his of his history. And you know, as yeah, you know, we've been talking a little bit about the Playhouse uh, ninety series, and yeah. Obviously, there's a, a you know, period in there when yeah that's coming to an end, and uh, the Twilight Zone is getting ready to start. And in I'm looking at pages 192 to 93, where yeah you you're, you're you know, writing about some of the uh, you know, publicity that Rod is doing to promote this basically new genre that's being presented on TV. And, uh, okay, or the viewers going to think about 
the sci-fi fantasy genre. Uh, you know, t- take us back to that uh, time right before the Twilight Zone start. It just seems like people really weren't sure where if this is going to catch on. Oh, yes, definitely. Uh, it was especially for a guy like Rod Sterling because, again, it was uh, – you know, Rod Sterling was such a prestigious figure in television, such an honored writer. And to go from writing these 90-minute dramas, straight dramas that were you know, applauded and, and lauded by the critics, and to go from that to a filmed 30-minute science fiction and fantasy series – you know, he said it was it was like it was like Stan Musial leaving the Cardinals to go coach third base on a little league team. You know, that that's how people viewed it at the time because they just they didn't see how could why would Rod Sterling do this? Why would he go you know leave Playoff 90 and go you know Playoff 90 was ending anyway, but you know leave that kind of show to go to Twilight Zone and and Rod Sterling knew what he was doing. You know, he he first of all he he just he wanted to do this type of show just because he loved it. He loved science fiction and fantasy and horror, and and he really wanted to do this type of show. He wanted to do these type of stories for his whole career. Really, he wanted to. He never he hadn't tried in a long time because he knew that it was just wasn't accepted uh, on television for a you know a real writer to write this stuff for six year olds. That's how how they saw it. They saw it as the bug eyed monster stuff, and it's not anything to be taken seriously. And when he was given the chance to do his own show, he said, you know, I'm going to do that science fiction show that I, I've always wanted to do. And luckily for us and for him, that he he had enough clout by that point where he could call that shot and say, this is what I'm going to do. And they went along with it. Uh, you know, they put him through the ringer a little bit in terms of he had to write three different pilots for it before they said, yeah, this was the one we'll go with. Uh, but but otherwise, he called the shots and he was able to you know produce that show the way he wanted it produced. And he was able to take this genre that was seen as a thing for kids not to be taken seriously and, and elevate it into an art form, to elevate it into something that was truly meaningful. And, you know, you were talking with Ann before about, you know, whether he knew his legacy was going to last this long and everything, and he certainly had his doubts. And and part of that doubt was just the fact that he just thought these 30-minute these shows weren't, you know, well, they weren't. How, how important could they be? They're only these 30-minute little short stories. Who's going to remember them? You know, he still had his mind in that, you know, I have to write the great American novel. You know, nobody's going to remember me for a short story. Um, but, hey, here we are 60 years later, and uh, there's yet another Twilight Zone series out now, and, and the show is going to last forever, and Rod Sterling is going to last forever. And, you know, one of the uh, – Episodes that you know, Mike Pfeiffer showed last year at the uh, conference was uh, Purple Testament, and yeah, an episode you know was dealing with such a really unexplained phenomenon like yeah. Uh, being able to see who's uh, going to die uh, next, yeah, uh, that has to be one of the first uh, uh, shows to deal with something uh, you know, a little uh, like out there, uh, you know that that. 
does get get into uh, might be a good explanation for you know why you know, he's a little ner- nervous about you know uh, how this series would be received, but it 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 it, 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 it it's it was episodes like that that pretty much laid the foundation of you know, uh, you know, night, you know, what we do here on Nightlight and Coast to Coast, and you know, Richards, um, you know, Searage shows, you know, so, you know, some of the other uh, shows that explore these topics yeah i, I think uh you know I, I i try to make the i think i make the point in the book but i i tell you i i'm i make this point in presentations that i give often uh about the twilight zone is that you know one of the things that rod serling has to be given a gigantic amount of credit for is the fact that he educated the mass audience on mm-hmm. how on how to watch fantasy on television, how to watch science fiction and fantasy. I mean, more so, more so fantasy than science fiction. But, but he he uh, he addressed because he was. This is a television show for you know 18 million people watched the initial watch that first episode of the Twilight Zone. Uh, so you know this is the mass audience, and these people had not. You know these aren't people who read the magazine of fantasy and fiction you know these aren't people who read amazing stories these are just the regular middle of the road you know podunk iowa mom and papa sitting down to watch for the first time a fantasy show and rod sterling had to really educate them on okay this is what the twilight zone is but more generally this is what fantasy is in a fantasy show somebody can look into somebody else's face and see a light and that tells them that that person's going to die and you just got to go with me on that you know trust me just go with me on that that's you accept it and go and you see this I, again. I, I talk about this in presentations a lot. You see this in little ways how Rod Strong talked to the audience, not necessarily in the show itself, but in like introductions he would do in between the shows, or other in other ways, or in interviews where he would say, "Listen, this is I know it's kooky, you know." He that's one of his words. He liked to say kooky. It's a little kooky, you know, but but go with me. Just just take it on faith. This is what happens in the Twilight Zone. And through five seasons, he was able to to educate that mass audience to the point where now, and not just now, but 50, even 50 years ago, you no longer had to explain those things to people. They understood now. Now I get it. You know, now, now I know that in some shows, the person can fly off the roof. They're not, you know, they don't have to walk down the fire escape. They can actually fly, you know? So it sounds silly, but it really was um, something that he had to be conscious of and he did it consciously and he did it brilliantly. And 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 every science fiction and fantasy writer since then owes him a giant debt of gratitude uh, for doing that because he opened that door for for everybody else to come afterwards. And, and speaking of opening the doors for other people, uh, and you in in your uh, biography, and. And you do talk about where uh, Rod and Ray Bradbury, uh, you know, corresponding, and Ray recommends a few people uh, to help out with the writing duties. Uh, you know, that 
that seems like a, a really important moment in the show uh, or, or the series. Uh, you, you know, Ray only wrote one episode, but he, you know, he's actually you know a very important twenty uh, first century American science fiction writer. But yeah, and yeah, yeah. and then. And then he brought on. Uh, it was what Ray's recommendation led to Richard Matheson co- coming on, and you know, Anne mentioned, you know, that, uh, he he's the one that wrote the Nightmare at Twenty Thousand Feet. You know, that's one of the all-time uh, best episodes as well. So, you know, what what was that? Uh, collaboration like between Rod and Ray? Um, well, yeah, essentially what you said, that, that Ray did did recommend uh, some people to Rod Sterling because Rod, first of all, Rod, you know, Rod Sterling knew that he wasn't going to write every episode of the series and nobody uh, would be able to do that and nobody would be crazy enough to, to do that or to try to do that. So so he knew he had to bring other writers along and, and Rod Sterling was not um, in that that click, you know, the click of science fiction writers. You know, Rod Sterling hadn't written science fiction, at least in the way that Ray Bradbury did uh, as a novelist and as a, a famed short story writer and everything else. Rod had tried to write science fiction very early in his career. He, you know, submitted a few things that you know re- were rejected, and and he and he was a, a, a voracious reader of science fiction. He loved to read it, but you know, he was just not part of the community, the science fiction community. Um, so he needed some uh, some guidance, and 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 Ray Bradbury, you know, suggested uh, Beaumont and Matheson, and he also suggested a, a writer named John Collier, who um, they ended up uh, adapting one story from John Collier. Most of the time, they couldn't uh, get the rights to the John Collier stories. He uh, always wanted too much money, John Collier. But but um, but he but what happened was Sterling uh, essentially invited uh, Beaumont and Matheson to the screening of the pilot. So they came and watched the screening of the pilot, liked what they saw. And signed on, said, "Yeah, we're we're on, we're on." And and the, the point I hope I make in the book is that this was like I think it was like the greatest happy accident of all time because I mean Rod, I'm sure Rod Sterling got a sense from these guys that they knew what they were they were pros first of all, and and I think he got a sense that they knew what he was talking about, knew the kind of show it was, but I don't think anybody could have known how perfectly they would have meshed into the series and with Rod Sterling as they did because they really just they they ended up providing like a perfect counterbalance to Rod Sterling. Rod Sterling would write these, as as Anne was saying, these emotional, uh, uh, sentimental stories. He would write um, very message-oriented stories. And Beaumont and Matheson, Matheson, Matheson would say, uh, "We just wrote stories. We just wrote the story stuff. He he did the messages. We didn't we didn't do that stuff, you know." And and it balanced and, and balanced his stuff. Mm-hmm. So when you so you could get an episode like uh, like the obsolete man. And then you can get a Beaumont after, afterward that's just a straight-up horror story that's going to knock your socks off, and, and that's it. And, it, and it's such a great counterbalance. It, to me, it's, it's almost it's – like, uh, it's like Lennon and McCartney. You know, it's, it's, it's really – it's like John Lennon writing these really strident kind of you know, angry songs. And then Paul McCartney's there to give you the, the, you know, the sweet love song afterward or a poppy song with a little bit more melody in, into it. And, and that's, that, was, to me, was where Sterling and Beaumont and Matheson were you – know, what they were like. And then George Clayton Johnson came along. And George Clayton Johnson actually did write, 
I think, very Sterling-esque stories. Uh, he he, which again was worked out well. Uh, in fact, I think it's funny you can see how there are actually more than one writer who I think wrote very Sterling-esque stories for the Twilight Zone. One is George Clayton Johnson. Um, one is a guy by the name of. Um, Oh boy. Uh, well, E. Jack Newman wrote an episode called The Trouble with Templeton that I have to admit, when I first saw this episode long ago and I saw the credits, I said, oh my God, Rod Sterling didn't write that? I, I, I would have sworn Rod Sterling wrote it and, and he didn't. So you have episodes like that that are very Sterling-esque, but Rod Sterling didn't write them. And when you take it all together, it just message, meshes so beautifully in, in the course of 156 episodes. Yeah, it's, it's just interesting when you, you know, if, if you read your book and you know, you, 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 know, you break down you know, who, uh, after each season who who wrote uh, what and you know Rod wrote this many episodes Matheson did you know, this many it, it's have a better understanding of the chemistry and, and teamwork to pull this series off that has had such an enduring uh, 60 year legacy. I hope so. I hope so. And, and, and honestly, one of the things that one of the things I wanted to do in the book is that I, I you know, it, Twilight Zone obviously is, very special in, in the Rod Sterling catalog. I mean, I'm not, there's no way to deny that. And I, I would never even try to deny that. So one of the things I wanted to do was, you know, I was kind of synopsizing each of the shows that Sterling wrote, but I didn't want to completely ignore the other ones. So I, I at the end of each chapter or at the end of each season, I do list all the ones that are written by other people, just so people know that, you know, I didn't forget about those. They're here. And, and I give you a little rating on, on each of them that, you know, just from my you know opinion. And uh, just to make sure that everybody has, you know, the list of all of the Twilight Zone episodes. But but I have gotten, you know, more than one person. I, I got an email from somebody that my, my publisher sent to me and said, uh, you know, so-and-so says, uh, you missed this episode. You missed that episode. And I, and I have to go back and say, no, you don't understand. I only did the Rod Serling episode. I didn't do every single Twilight Zone episode. Otherwise, the book would be 100 pages longer than it actually is. And it's, it's not. <laughs> yeah, it's – yeah, there – I it, it's – just um, you know what you were just discussing. It just really makes Rod you know, like one of these people where you would want to work for him because there, yeah, you know, there was a a, a chemistry. To get get this to to work right, and, and it seems like you know, you know, we covered like aspects of you know, like the artist's uh, you know, d- demand for uh, perfectionism uh, of himself, but you know, there, you know, you're, in your book. You're you're showing us that like there really wasn't a whole lot of egos with the, the writers. It became you know, more so with his his uh, battles with the like studio people. But working like being part of that little 
close-knit group is intriguing to uh, watch how that developed. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think um, part of it was part of it was that that camaraderie uh, that Sterling had with with people in general, and part of it was respect. You know, he just he had respect for. Beaumont and Matheson and Johnson and everybody really who, who he worked with and they had respect for him and so when Charles Beaumont came along and he t- I tell a story in the book that's it's been told elsewhere but when Charles Beaumont came along and he gave him that first script which was Perchance to Dream one of the all-time great Twilight Zone episodes written by Charles Beaumont and Beaumont gave him that script and Beaumont says to himself you know this is never going to air the way I wrote it you know it's you know he told me he told me go ahead and write it the way you see it on the screen and then and send it in don't worry about anything you know about the you know tv censorship anything like that just just write the way you want and one says i'm you know this is never going to air the way i i wrote it and sure enough it airs word for word not a not a word changed airs the way he wrote it and he says he was just so floored by seeing that it was the first time he'd ever seen that you know in, in television that you know he knew he was dealing with somebody who had respect for writers and 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 had respect for the written word and so so what writer wouldn't want to uh, work for somebody like that you know that's 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 the mm-hmm. way that Sterling was and and it's just it's amazing how you hear these stories from person after person and i was just i was just watching an interview with uh, Perry Lafferty who directed three or four of the Twilight Zone episodes um, including one or two of the hour-long episodes in season four. And, and he says, you know, this is from not too long ago, 20 years ago or something. He says, you know, that, you know, working in live television was the greatest, uh, you know, uh, experience of his life. And the second greatest experience was, was working with Rob Sterling on The Twilight Zone. You know, it's you hear that kind of thing over and over again from actors, from directors, from producers. I mean, I see, you know, it's the um, there, was, there was a trading card set that was just released, the, the Rob Sterling you know, Twilight Zone trading card set, but they called the Rod Sterling edition with the 92 Rod Sterling episodes that he wrote, and and it's autographs uh, from from actors and actresses, and and it's amazing how many of them write my favorite role, you know, or or this was, you know, this was the most fun to do, you know, this is, and they write that with their with their signature, you know, how many of them do that? It's, and they're not sa- just saying that, it's 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 amazing. I mean, when you talk to Bill Mooney in a little bit, you'll you'll hear him say that how proud he is to have done this show. Uh, they were all like that, and they they to this day, you know, they carry that. The ones that are still with us, thankfully, are you know still uh, think of it that way, that they were honored to be a, a part of this show. Okay, and, and you know, like a variation of what you know, we were just talking about with uh, writers you know, uh, looking back on you know the. Their experiences working with Rod. Um, you, you also uh, bring up in your book where you know Rod was responding to uh, fan mail, and it, it, you know he, he's just corresponding to. All kinds of people you know, th- throughout the day, and you know, he, he was just trying to connect with uh, people who had uh, comments about the uh, shows. Can can you tell us a little bit about you know, like finding those uh, fan letters? You know, what what a lot of the uh, uh, 
you know, responses uh, re- revealed about Rod? Well, it's yeah. Rod Sterling was uh, incredibly um, accessible and in- incredibly um, uh, well. Accessible is the, is the right word. He was the type of guy. He he seemingly responded to every letter he ever received, and personally, it wasn't like he had a stamp, you know, a stamp uh, signed photo and that he would send out. You know, he if you sent him a letter and asked him a question about an episode, he would write you back and answer the actual question. You know, he would do that all all the time. Uh, so, so, you know, doing the research for the book, I was able to see a lot of these, these letters cause he kept everything. He kept every letter that ever crossed his desk, I think. So, so yeah, so he would do that. And if you wrote to him with a complaint about the episode, you know, that you didn't like an episode, he'd probably be even more apt to give you a very detailed response and, and a respectful response. Uh, assuming you gave him respectful criticism, you know? Uh, so he would, yeah, he was, he was so good like that in terms of, yeah, just responding to every letter that he got, every fan letter. Um, just very accommodating is the word I was looking for. Very accommodating with with people uh, who are watching the show. I mean, part of this, of course, was you know public relations and everything. He was you know this was his baby, uh-huh. and he wanted it to be successful. But but overwhelmingly more, it was it was just Rod Sterling's nature. That's that's the type of guy he was. He was just you know you wrote him a letter, he was going to respond to it. You know that's just it was courtesy. It was common courtesy. So he, uh, I don't know, I don't know how anybody wrote this much, possibly. I don't know how anybody could possibly have written this much when you take into account things like this, like letters and other things. I mean, he dictated, that's part of the reason, but, but even so, it's just amazing just how much came out of this man. It's, it's unbelievable. Okay, and, 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 you know, go, uh, you know, watch some of the episodes on YouTube, or uh, you know, they see reruns on MeTV. Uh, hopefully, they're going to uh, take a watch the episode uh, with new eyes. But you know, one of the uh, differences they might see as you know, uh, they go through this series was the use of film versus video, and, and you know there are some that look like the like they're actually di- uh, like. Uh, Filmed differently, and, and I think one of them is um, twenty-two. Is twenty-two the one uh, one with uh, uh, room for one more honey? Yes, yes, and that is one of the videotapes. Uh, okay, I, okay, I, I, good. I, I was hoping I was throwing out the right right one because you know that does kind of lead into you know, Jonathan Harris is in that one that ties in with. Uh, or super special guest uh, be coming on in a few minutes, but uh, you know, how did that change in technology uh, affects the Twilight Zone? Um, not in a good way. That's that's for certain. Um, it wasn't. Uh, you know, the technology had already existed, but what it was was 
it was it was solely a budget cutting uh, technique. It was and it was decided beforehand. What happened was that after the first season of the Twilight Zone had had wrapped, it was um, it was a modest success. It wasn't you know it wasn't a runaway hit, but it was it was well did well enough to warrant re, you know renewing it for a second season. But but the sponsors and the network wanted uh, you know wanted to cut the budget. And one of the ways they saw that they could cut the budget was if they did. Originally, it was planned to do 10 videotaped episodes, and, and videotape was cheaper than film because it was it required less setup time. It was more static. You, you had fewer sets, and the editing was much quicker on videotape than it is in film. So it kind of just shortened the production time and it cut some, some, uh, some off the budget. As it turned out, it really didn't cut the budget that much. It did cut it a bit, but not all that much. But... But as you could see by watching those episodes, there's six of them, 22 is one and, and five others. They look completely different than the rest of the series. It almost looks like a different series. And, and what happened mm-hmm. with Sterling, they, they, again, they, they originally planned on doing 10 episodes on video and, um, Basically, after the six episodes were done on video, Rod Sterling said, "Enough! I, 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 this is terrible. If, if you guys have to continue with the other four on, on, on video, oh, you know, actually, I might be, um, I might be wrong about this. I have to go back to my book, but it might have been sixteen episodes. It might have been ten more on video. I, I'm not, I'm not sure, but they had, there was going to be more on video. And Rod Sterling said, "If you're going to do any more on videotape, take my, I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. I did my enough writing for the show already. You can do the rest of the season without me writing anything. I'll still, you know, I'll host it and everything, but I'm not writing anymore." And he had to kind of use that as a threat because he saw that this really was ruining the show or would have ruined the show. And thankfully they, they went with them on that. They said, okay, all right, we'll, we'll go back to film. And, and the six episodes that are on videotape are, you know, they're kind of an oddity, you know, that's kind of, it's one of the frequently asked questions you get from people who are just watching the show for the first time. They say, what's, what's with these, these other episodes, they look so strange, you know, and that's it. That's just that they were done on video and they don't have that, they don't have the, the film noir look. They don't have the, sh- the shadows and the atmosphere that the other episodes have. Um, but that's not to say all six of them are terrible. One of them is The Night of the Meek that's on videotape, and I think that one happens to work on, on videotape. Um, I think it still probably would have been better on film, but but it works on videotape, and that episode, is, is I think, is terrific. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's, in the case of 22, I think it, it hurts it. I think it, that one certainly would have been a lot better on, on film. And then there's, there's four others that are you know varying degrees of of uh, you know good or bad but but yeah so thankfully it was just those six episodes okay and you know we um have been talking talking a lot about uh you know the twilight zone uh you know my you know my hopefully you have a lot of people really you know uh, de- developing in interest in th- this conference. So m- maybe what it t- take just a, a minute where, where you could tell us more about you know the location of where uh, the conference is going to be held and uh, you know, the dates, uh, websites. Yeah, sure, I'd love to. Um, well, we're calling it Sterling Fest 2019. Uh, the TZ at 60, so it's the 60th anniversary of the debut 
the day uh, it was probably going to debut October second, nineteen fifty nine. So October second, two thousand nineteen is the, is the 60th anniversary. And the convention, you know, I wouldn't really call it a conference only because I mean there were there were um, Rod Sterling conferences a while back at Ithaca College, and they were much more um, academic. And conferences. This is more of a. It's like a convention. It's it's um. We're going to be screening Twilight Zone episodes. We're going to have you know about a dozen different writers there who have written books about Rod Sterling or the Twilight Zone will be on hand to give presentations, to do panels, and that that type of thing. And it's going to be October fourth, fifth, and sixth. This is a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. It's a three three day uh, uh, event in Binghamton. And this year, this is actually the third year we're doing it. We've done them in the past two years, but this is the first year where we're doing three days. And we decided we're actually going to be doing it at three different locations in Binghamton. So, and they're all, but they're all within within blocks of each other. They're they're very close, so it's not you know there won't be much traveling uh, you know for anybody. But so the on the third on the Friday, October fourth, we're going to be at a place called Atomic Tom's uh, on State Street in Binghamton. It's kind of like a catering hall kind of place where um, we're going to be doing some things there. Uh, the next day, we're going to be at the Broome County Forum Theater on Washington Street in Binghamton, and that's the place we have. We've had the last two conferences at. It's this beautiful old theater uh, right in the heart of downtown Binghamton, and there's a, a Rod Serling um, memorial in the in the um, in the you know in the waiting area of the uh, of the of the Forum Theater. It's a it's a, a really nice display of Rod Serling photos and and other other mementos. Uh, there, so we're going to be there all day on on the Saturday, and then on Sunday, October sixth, we'll be at the Helen Foley Theater at the Rod Serling School of Arts um, at the at the uh, Binghamton High School. So it's Rod Serling's High School. We'll be at at the Helen Foley Theater uh, all day Sunday, and there's going to be a whole bunch of things, you know, screenings. Uh, we're going to be doing, you know, there's, the, there's not only the 60th anniversary of the Twilight Zone, there's actually also the 50th anniversary of the Night Gallery pilot movie, so we're going to be commemorating that with uh, a screening of the Night Gallery pilot movie and a discussion about that. We're going to be having as a guest um, Tom Elliott, who does the Twilight Zone podcast, a very popular podcast in England. Uh, he's flying over to, to be with us, and he's going to be doing a live podcast on, on the Friday at, at Atomic Tom's. And with interviews of all the uh, all the guests, uh, Ann Sterling, as we mentioned, will be there um, certainly as part of the Remembering Rod uh, panel that we're going to be doing. And it's going to be it's going to be a three day love fest of, of of the Twilight Zone and Rod Sterling and, and everything in between. So so it's it's you know, we're really really looking forward to it. And and for more information, tickets and everything else, you can go to RodSterling.com, www.RodSterling.com. Uh, right now we have three day weekend tickets available online. Um, we weren't able to do daily tickets online, but if you do want to just come for one of the three days, you can do that. You just uh, will have tickets at the door, so you can come to any one of the, the events on each day, and we'll have tickets available at the door, and it'll certainly be uh, less than $40. It's $40 for the weekend, uh, for a weekend pass for the three days. Um, but, uh, but you can come just for one specific day if that's what you want to do. So, so it's going to be fun. Okay. Is there a lodging nearby? Well, there is um, the, uh, the the Double Tree Hotel is right across the street from the Forum Theater, but I believe that they are sold out for the for the for the weekend, unfortunately. But there are plenty of others. Uh, there is a, there are a couple different Holiday Inns. There's a Holiday Inn in downtown Binghamton uh, that's very reasonable and very close to everything, and a, a lot of people, uh, several people, are staying there. Uh, so that's one I would recommend. 
Um, but we didn't actually set up a, uh, you know, like a, a block of rooms or anything like that this time because um, it was a little bit strange with the logistics and everything. But but that particular uh, one, the Holiday Inn, I know was close to everything, and I, you could look into that one. Okay. It, Nick, you mentioned that what, uh, this year is the 50th anniversary of the uh, pilot for – Night gallery, um, yeah. There, there, there's another, you know, you know, one of those connections with uh, Rod and Roddy McDowell doing, yeah. You know, uh, oh, uh, the, the, the one with uh, Roddy ends up being a human in a zoo. And then a, a, a few years later, uh, he, you know, he's Cornelius in the Planet of the Apes. And then, but the next year, uh, Roddy's in the pilot of the Cemetery episode that uh, kicks off the Night Gallery series. And that, and that, that one was written by Rod as well, right? Oh, yes, yes. Right. Okay. okay. Total all three of the stories that are in the Night Gallery pilot movie. Okay, and that series had like a lot of promise to it, but uh, just kind of didn't achieve the same kind of. Lasting fame that the Twilight Zone had. You know, what what was going on there on on that series? Well, that's yeah. It's it's, uh, it's an interesting story, Night Gallery. It's you know it was uh, proud. It was not even probably. It was certainly the most frustrating experience that Rod Serling ever had creatively uh, in his career in that he created the show and it was spawned from that pilot movie. And, and even the term pilot movie is kind of a misnomer because it wasn't really meant to be a pilot. Uh, I, I'm, so, I'm sure at some, you know, in some part of Rod Sterling's mind, he may have had that in mind, but, but it really was just a movie. He had, he had written, um, he had written the, uh, a book called the seasons be wary. And it was a collection of stories and he adapted the the um, nice the night gallery pilot the movie from that collection. So it was he wrote uh, two adaptations of stories from that book, and one new story, and put them in as as a movie. And it aired as uh, just basically a movie of the week on television in November of 1969, and it got really good ratings and a really good response from the public. And you know, so he Serling was nominated for uh, um, uh, an award from the Mystery Writers Guild of America for best dramatic presentation of the year. And and almost immediately, d- discussions began on how do we turn this into a series. And you know, Rod Serling at that point in his life did not want to commit the kind of time and effort that he had committed to the Twilight Zone on a television series. He just was was not. Uh, able to do it, he was burnt out. You know, he was not. He he couldn't put in 14-hour days on a series anymore. So, he agreed to do it for several reasons. One was that it was only going to be a 
a part of a one quarter of a season that was going to be covered by something called four and one. There were going to be four different series that would cover the whole season and his and night gallery would only be one quarter of it. So it wasn't really like a whole big whole season that he had to do. He was only a quarter of a season. So he said, okay, I think I can do that. And the other reason was because it was an anthology series, which he didn't think he was going to have a chance to do another anthology series. And, and he liked anthologies. He liked to be able to write different stories for different characters every week. And, and this was going to give him that opportunity again. And he also, he wanted to be in front of the camera again. I mean, he was, he really was a, a, a ham. He was a bit of a ham and he liked being in front of the camera. So it had a lot going for it, including, including the money, of course, you know, so he wanted to do it, but he didn't want to, uh, be the executive producer in charge of everything again. So, of course, they had to hire a producer, and Universal Studios hired a man named Jack Laird to be the producer of the show. And it turned out that Jack Laird was the only person that I could yeah, that I could, uh, you know, find in my research of Rod Sterling's career that Rod Sterling didn't get along with ever. You know, he was he was the one guy that he butted heads with. Uh, ever and they and it happened almost immediately. They just never saw eye to eye on that series from day one. And Jack Laird, you know, to to be fair, was in a kind of a strange position because he was kind of given the reins of this show, and it's called Rod Sterling's Night Gallery. But Jack Laird's the producer of it, and Jack Laird really was not a fan of Rod Sterling as a writer, believe it or not. And they just didn't kind of see eye to eye on creative creatively. So. So, but Jack Laird did not handle Rod Serling well at all, and so they they fought, and uh, and Rod Serling became frustrated with the series very very quickly, and so he didn't have any creative control on the series at all, and that uh, shows that the series suffered for that, and but all that all that being said, I think I make the point in the book that you know Rod Serling still wrote some tremendous stuff for Night Gallery, and there were some great episodes of Night Gallery. And a couple of the episodes Rod Sterling wrote, I would put up with anything that he that he wrote, particularly an episode called The Messiah on Mott Street, I think is one of the best things he ever wrote. It's a beautiful story. Um, that's one episode. Uh, Anne had mentioned they're tearing down Tim Riley's bar. That was mm-hmm. his particular, that was his personal favorite of the, of the shows and one of his personal favorites ever. So, so, and that pilot movie I think is great. So, so there's plenty of gems on Night Gallery, but it was such a mixed bag. And Rod Sterling's lack of creative control, is, is, you can see it in lots of different ways. And so the series itself on the whole, yeah, is not as well remembered as Twilight Zone by, by a long shot. Yeah, there's um, you know, one episode I do like is that uh, certain shadows on the wall. Uh, that, that one's pretty freaky. But, uh, like the dead people end up being on the wallpaper yes it's a it's a freaky vision yeah yeah night gallery had lots of of things like that where things like that would stick with you i, I mean you know the episode the caterpillar is probably yeah. the most most famous of the night gallery uh you know stephen king said it was the most terrifying thing that had ever, ever been on television at, at that point and uh and it was it was uh, you know that is and rod Sterling wrote that one was adapted from the short story it's great uh, adaptation and that is a great episode. It's just pure, you know, pretty much pure horror, and with a great twist ending. Um, you know, so twist endings on the Twilight Zone. Well, this is a great twist ending on Night Gallery. Uh, so yeah, so that one is is up there with the you know the best episodes of the series for sure. And, and you know, since since we're talking about 
uh, Night Gallery, you know, there were a couple uh, – uh, there, there's at least that one r- real um, uh, goofy e- episode with John Aston as like a, a, a hippie guy well, uh, thinking that he's in – Heaven, and he gets he gets bored uh, waiting around for the uh, you know, good good things to happen. Um, but you, you but in, in your book, you, know, you uh, tell us that the Twilight Zone. Really paved the way for, um, like the Adams family, bewitched, uh, the the monsters. You know, you know John Aston was you know, in in the uh, Adams family uh, show, but you know, yeah, you know, there, there was like that paving. The, the way for all these other shows that you know, all, you know, a lot of us either grew up watching as you know they premiered, or you know, you're watching them after school, and yeah, you know, I, I thought that was an interesting note about uh, the Twilight Zone's legacy. Well, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it did it did to some extent open the door for some of the shows like that only because I think, you know, the point I make in the book is that, you know, people today, again, probably this sounds strange to some people because they'll, they'll, you know, it's hard to put yourself in that mind frame of that time. But, you know, at the time, what I, what I was talking about is that, that Rod Swing had this idea for not one of the best Twilight Zone episodes by, by a long shot, but, but Mr. Beavis, one of the Twilight Zone episodes, posted <laughs> pilot for a series actually he had an idea of a series where this bumbling you know character named beavis uh would be um visited by his guardian angel and he'd get into trouble every week and the guardian angel would kind of get him out of trouble or, or and they would learn a lesson at the end of it and that was basically it and and it didn't sell and one of the reasons it didn't sell was simply because it was fantasy that just just because it had a fantasy element in it um still the audience you know the again the networks thought that the audience just wasn't ready for that type of show in prime time you know we got the twilight zone that's kooky enough and this is fairly early in the show too it wasn't uh, i mean i think beavis is is the first season or second season? i'm not sure so maybe second season but um but so it's fairly early on, and and the network was just no, we you know it's it's fantasy, it's too goofy, to, people aren't going to want to watch that at, at in prime time, and and that was it. And it, it wasn't until you know about four years later, and all of a sudden you had boom, you had the monsters, Adam's family, Bewitched, I Dream of Genie, they all came out you know within you know very short period of time from each other, and they were all fantasy, you know, and and just four years earlier, Rod Sterling was told, no, nah, you can't do that show, it's too, too much fantasy, so, you know, so yeah, so uh, the success of The Twilight Zone, I think, certainly finally got the networks to open up their eyes, that people can understand this kind of show, and they're not going to say, what, who are these monsters, what, you know, who's, you know, this is kind of, this is silly, you know, but, you know, well, and it was silly, but, but it was, but, hey, it was, it was, it was, people could watch that on primetime television, and it was okay, <laughs> Yeah, and, and you know, even though uh, 
Night Gallery yeah, could, could be seen as uh, some episodes were silly. Uh, so, some, uh, you know, really did uh, create a, uh, you know, you know, uh, you know, real, you know really good gothic uh, type type of shows like the. Uh, uh, shadows on the wall, or um, but yeah, the aspect of the uh, fantasy that may have impacted uh, and you know, someone who's also getting his uh, foot in the door is um, uh, Steven Spielberg. Yeah, well, Steven Spielberg's basically his first job was directing one of the episodes of the Night Gallery pilot film, and uh, he did a great job on it, uh, the, the episode with Joan Crawford called Eyes. And, uh, yeah, that was essentially his first uh, big big job, big break. And, um, you know, I think he's done, done a few things since that I think have been uh, yeah. pretty well-received, I think. So, yeah, that was his first, and then he ended up doing an episode of the first season also called uh, – Called "Make Me Laugh," which is awful, just downright god awful. Um, and 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 from all and and some of his scenes had to be reshot. Um, so and everything. So that was didn't go nearly as well as the pilot movie uh, episode. But um, so he went from both both extremes, I think. But but uh, yeah. So you get you get guys who are, you know uh, directors who became big stars, and you have actors who became big stars, and yeah, a lot of, they got their breaks in these kinds of shows. Okay, speaking of. Um, yeah, big stars. And I think it is time to bring on our super special guest. And let me get. That going so the uh, uh, what's the uh, website again? Uh, it's www.rodserling.com. Calling for now. Looking forward to this. Hey, Bill. Hey, is it, this Mark? Y- yes, it is. And I have Hi, Nick Parisi. Hey, hey, Bill. And you got Nick Parisi here. <laughs> hey, Bill. How are you? I'm good. I thought I was expecting a call from my grandmother from hell, but. <laughs> <laughs> it's me, Billy. I think that's right. <laughs> hey, yeah. That is one of the six video episodes that uh, the network, in its infinite wisdom, decided to change from film to video. Yeah, we were just talking about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I yeah, I just need uh if uh you know, there uh maybe two people in the audience who uh may not recognize your voice. Yeah, you know, I just 
want to give yeah, our it guests. It might have changed. Puberty struck in the last <laughs> 59 years. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Our, our uh, uh, super special surprise guest uh, doesn't need much of an intro. His work has been ingrained in our lives for 60 years. We heard him on Sunday nights on Dr. Demento with his fish heads. <laughs> He has a wonderful music and songwriting career. He was in one of the greatest action-adventure movies of all time, Papillon. had three memorable appearances in The Twilight Zone, as well as... More. More than the three. But carry on. Go on, Mark. I'm enjoying. Okay, as as well as being Will Robinson in Lost in Space. So welcome, Bill Moomey. Thank you, Mark. That was nice. No, you know, I did the three original episodes, uh, Long mm-hmm. Distance Call, It's a Good Life, and In Praise of Pip. And then I did uh, uh, a cameo-type thing in the feature film. And then I did uh, It's Still a Good Life in the mm-hmm. 2003 uh, Twilight Zone. And then I wrote an episode, one of those episodes as well. So I got uh, plenty of uh, T-Zone badges on my uh, uniform. Okay, and you know, just as we're just getting started, I want, uh, you know, wanted the audience to know that you, you will be appearing via Skype or you know, uh, electronically at the Twilight Zone convention on Saturday, the October fifth. Fifth. Okay. Yeah, I hope that I hope that technically works out. Well, I'm sure that'll be fine. But yeah, uh, yeah that'll be that'll be a first for me beaming myself over there. All right. All right. Well, first of something. That's 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 right. Absolutely. And it, it it'll be good. It'll be real good. All right. <laughs> it, if if the technology doesn't work out, we'll have a toy telephone handy. Uh, there you go. <laughs> it it, it you know, since, since we are uh, speaking about uh, you know, your uh, appearance in Long Distance Call, did, did, did that uh, episode help you to you know, shape your view of the afterlife? Because you, know, you do have you know, something similar to that in – and uh your song dying to be heard you know some of your other uh spiritually oriented songs uh it would be probably incorrect for me to say that that episode when i was you know 6 really shaped my okay philosophical feelings about you know what happens to you when you die i, I um really i had just done a, a, an episode of the Loretta Young show that James Shelton had directed with Cloris Leachman. And when James Shelton was, um, you know, brought on to direct uh, Twilight Zones, uh, he cast me uh, in that episode. And, you know, one of the main things that I remember about Long Distance Call, particularly, was yes, it was done on video. And I had been working in live television, Playhouse 90s, and things like that. It's certainly a totally different experience, you know, shooting a show where you you cut and then you do cut.
coverage constantly and you reset up and you know uh, it moves at a much faster pace and it's just a completely different lighting situation it's more like a soap opera or live TV back in those days uh, the video aspect of it one of the things I, I remember is when we were blocking it and rehearsing it uh, Mr. Serling uh, was there, and he really wasn't happy with the last scene when um, uh, Philip Abbott picks up the toy telephone and and pleads with his deceased mother to uh, you know not claim the life of his son. Uh, and we just stopped everything for uh, a good 45 minutes or so while uh, Rod Serling and it might have been. Uh, Bill Idelson, it might have been, um, you know, Charles Beaumont. I don't remember because I wasn't necessarily introduced to either one of them. But they kind of huddled over uh, in the wings, so to speak, of the soundstage. And Rod rewrote that dialogue. And within a very brief amount of time, it, it kind of went from from gold to platinum. You know, it just was improved uh, greatly in a very short amount of time. And... Uh, Everyone was very well aware of of that. One of the things about the Twilight Zone is, you know, uh, Rod Serling, of course, brilliant visionary and and singular talent, uh, but he also had an incredibly good executive producer in in Buck Houghton. You know, Buck Houghton really had uh, Rod Serling's back, and and he really went to the mat for. Rod Serling in terms of network interference, especially with the the, uh, the videotaped mandate. You know, they were going to do a whole season uh, on tape to save you know some money, and uh, and uh, Buck Houghton said, "No, we're not going to carry on after they did that." It makes those six episodes, you know, very special and and unique and and uh, stand alone in a way as a small little pocket of the zone. But uh, obviously, they were correct in, in going back to film. And uh, Buck Houghton was a great champion for for Rod Serling. He called me personally with Carol Serling um, when they were doing the feature film. And, uh, you know, he was really, they were really nice and flattering and asked me if I'd just do a little nudge, nudge, wink, wink thing in the uh, remake of It's a Good Life that Joe Dante was directing. Um, because they, they really, uh, you know, confirmed to me uh, at least, you know, verbally, they told me that, you know, Rod really liked my work. And it was very flattering. And I was happy to be included in that, that project, even though I I didn't think it was that successful, or, you know, when it was all said and done. Obviously, it was also a great tragedy. But anyway, to have Buck and uh, Carol Serling reach out to me like that was very flattering. Mm-hmm. Buck 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 Houghton is the, he's he's the unsung hero of the Twilight Zone. There's, there's no doubt about it. And they were they were a great team. They were uh, that was the most productive you know creative relationship I think Rod Sterling ever had was was with Buck Houghton. They would they would just no they, doubt about it. I mean he Buck really did protect him, and he was an excellent executive producer. And he totally got the Twilight Zone, which is you know a, oh yeah what was needed. You know I mean it, 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 we're look we're living in such a different world. Mm-hmm. You're you're going back to what you would call classic golden age TV, where uh, creative visionaries truly uh, fought for with the aid of their executive producers for their visions to be shot. 
You know what I mean? Whether it was Alfred Hitchcock, whether it was Ozzie Nelson, whether it was George Burns, whether it was you know Rod Serling or Walt Disney, uh, they those people uh, really were able to create television uh, the way they wanted to. And there were certainly a lot of obstacles thrown in their way, but these people were so talented and respected and strong-willed that uh, thankfully for the audiences, uh, they got to produce the projects the way they wanted to. And that's a rarity in those days, and it's certainly yeah. almost vanished in today's world, with the exception of some of the, you know, the more smaller little Netflix. Well, they're not so little, but you know, the smaller yeah. things where you only get ten episodes or, or something, uh, where they're willing to roll the dice with the creative control. Right. Uh, Bill, when you know, it, it's a good life um, you know, premiered, it, it was the, in the middle of a trilogy of uh, you know, three very dark episodes. You know, you, you know the mirror. Uh, you know, with Peter Falk as the Fidel Castro uh, character. Then you know the one you're in, and that was followed by. Death's Head Revisited with the uh, uh, Nazi uh, returning to Dachau and being uh, yeah. judged by uh, you know, the ghosts uh, um, yeah. of his victims. It, but you know, when you look back on yeah, just those three episodes, yeah, you know, you're the star of uh, this uh, second one. Yeah, you know, that's just a, a major accomplishment in itself. <laughs> well, it's a, it's certainly, um, you know, I mean, I, I, first of all, I guess you can be objective about something sixty, fifty nine years later, right? Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a fantastic television show. The cast is brilliant. Uh, you know, the the short story by Jerome Bixby was turned into this incredible teleplay by. Rod Serling, and uh, again, James Shelton did a fabulous job of casting and and uh, directing that that project. Uh, you know, it's it's held up really well, and I'm I'm very pleased that uh, I was a, a part of all of those Twilight Zones, but certainly that one has you know garnered the most attention over the years. Did did you have you know, much preparation to do to be Anthony Fremont, the monster, or or did you show up and just act like a six year old? No, I mean I I was very well aware of a couple of key things when we were shooting the show. One was. That, you know, I was in complete control of reality. So in essence, he's the most powerful mutant that ever existed. Now, this this was before Jack Kirby and <laughs> Stanley had created the X-Men. So I wasn't thinking in terms of mutants. But Anthony Fremont is the most powerful mutant in existence. What I was aware of that was that he had unlimited powers. But what was another big thing that I was aware of was that he was constantly picking up your thoughts that, as an actor, is a very important, you know, part of that character. 
because it's like your brain is a is a radio dial on scan and it's constantly kind of picking up these different thoughts so there's a um there's a peckishness about anthony in a way where you know he's 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 noticing things because of that um james sheldon and i uh spent probably 5 minutes working on the look when anthony was engaging his power when he was sending someone away or, or transforming something into something else, uh, we together spent just, you know, I mean, it didn't take long. It's like, okay, when you do that, make your eyes real big. And, you know, there was a little nostril flare <laughs> involved. Um, but it wasn't, I mean, you know, it was, it's, it was a lot of fun and it's work at the same time. You know, you're six years old or you're seven years old. You memorize your lines, which was always extremely easy for me. You know, we all have our own natural gifts, and that was something I could do and quite easily. Um, and then you just believe the situation when when they say, okay, rolling and action, and man, you're just in a different thing, you know. Uh, it was it was easy, but it was fun, it, and it was work mm-hmm. at the same time. You know, you, you might be seven years old. You can't say, I don't feel like doing this right now. <laughs> you, know, you do it, and, you, and it was great. And working with the uh, the talent on so many different projects that I got to work with was certainly a, an incredible education in terms of you know acting and television and filmmaking. I mean, I really got to to work closely with masters of the craft at the top of their game games. So uh, yeah, I was very fortunate to to be a part of that stuff. It, it, you know, one of the interesting things about it's a good life is okay. You know, there really aren't, or there isn't any uh, you know makeup applied to you, like no prosthetics you know like the uh, you know like you, you could have the eye the, the hidden eye uh from you know the one episode you know there, there's none of that well, it's just I know, your I know face. where you're going with that I know where you're going and, and 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 I think first of all the fact that the twilight zones are in black and white the classic twilight zones are in black and white isn't is such a positive thing because immediately you can suspend a certain amount of belief and you're going into a you know another realm of vision and reality but whether it was buck houghton's choice or rod serling's choice and i'm sure it was a collaborative process they decided for the vast majority of the twilight zones to let your imagination mm-hmm. take you into a certain realm as opposed to you know, cheesy rubber monsters on Lost in Space. Oh, you know, I like those too. That's a whole different subject. But, you know, you see the shadow of the jack-in-the-box, right. for instance. You know, you see it for just a second. Your mind registers like that. Whoa, that's that guy's face. But you can't – you don't really dwell on that. It's just a shadow on the wall. And when he's holding the three-headed gopher, you know he's holding a three-headed gopher, but all you see is the tail twitching. Mm-hmm. Um, there's uh, – I mean I can go on and on, but I'm, either the audience knows it or they don't. But the fact remains is they left so much to the audience's – imagination they respected the audience to get it as opposed to just 
throwing it right in their face and saying, you know, here it is. And certainly, you know, that was done a few times too, but actually I think it was more successful when it was uh, implied as opposed to really uh, overly overt. Yeah, that's one of the charms of it's the it's a good life episode is just the minimal amount of special effects and it, it but it makes such a lasting impact 60 years later it's it just oh, really I agree I mean I yeah. completely agree when 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 Anthony's upstairs with his dad you hear a dog barking and then you hear the dog's not barking anymore <laughs> and Anthony just tells you you know you know, I put him in the cornfield. It's so much more powerful. Yeah, that, just that, that, let that play in your mind's eye than it is to go show a Labrador disappearing. It, it, and it, you know, we have you know about uh, twelve minutes left, and you know, I also want to touch on in, in praise of Pip, and mm-hmm. yeah, 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 that's a. Uh, another you know really interesting episode. Uh, you, you're working with uh, Jack Klugman, who is what uh, I, I I think he had four appearances yeah. on uh, the the, the uh, Twilight Zone series, yeah, and you know he he would go on to you know Jack Klugman was a great actor and a yeah. very versatile actor. And he was an extremely passionate actor. He gave him his he gave his all. And we when we were filming out uh, at the pier in Santa Monica uh, on at Pacific Ocean Park, which was an amusement park here on the beach, um, both of my mom and dad came down with me for those. Uh, shots and, and days, be, nights, because uh, they were night shots, and uh, we lived close to the the beach, and so they both came. And I'll never, I'll never forget. Uh, Mr. Klugman came up to my mom and dad, which you know, look, I'd been working for three or four years quite prolifically at that point in time with playing all sorts of different characters, and they were very comfortable with what I had done and what I was doing. But he came up to my parents, and he introduced himself, and he said to my father especially, he said, you know, in this scene that we're about to shoot, when I see your son, it's going to overtake me with emotion, and I'm going to grab him, and I'm going to hug him, and I'm going to kiss him, and I want you to know that in advance. I don't want you to think there's anything weird going on. And it was so generous of him. It was completely unnecessary, but it was a beautiful, beautiful gesture from him. And uh, um, I saw him many years later, and we discussed that together. And and he was a wonderful talent and a really wonderful guy, and I, I loved working with him. And we just lost Bobby Diamond a few months ago, who played mm-hmm. Pip, uh, the older Pip. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. he was a he was a good guy. And yeah. uh, it was nice to to uh, to work with all those people. I love that story, Bill. I, I say it's like, I love that story, and and, and it's only... the second. It's the second, by the way, because I'm, I'm always people are always saying, "Hey, man, that's the first television show about American casualties in Vietnam," 
and 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 Rod Serling, of course, wrote that. That's an original uh, screenplay by him, not adapted, and it's a fantastic script. And I know that some of the dialogue uh, was actually taken from his own personal relationships with Anne and and how he used to say, "Who's your best buddy?" and and things like that. But actually, yeah. there was an episode of Route 66 <laughs> before the Twilight Zones and Praise of Pip that did mention uh, American casualties in Vietnam. So I'd like hmm. to clarify for the record that it was the second <laughs> major television show to address that. And, it, you know, it's like Rod Serling, he was the star of the Twilight Zone, you know, those anthology shows, there's very few of them uh, anymore. But back in the days of Playhouse 90 or Alfred Hitchcock or the GE Theater, whatever, um, you know, he was the, the, the singular uh, on-screen regular in, in that series. And whenever he came on the set, everyone in the crew they were all very excited and, and anxious to talk to him about the next episode and props that they were getting together or wardrobe that they were getting together, wondering who was going to be cast because they'd had the script for a week or so. Uh, he was just great. And, and you know, he had a, a moody kind of brooding, dark presence on camera. But I can tell you, yeah, of course, I was I was a little kid, but I can tell you from the three times that I got the opportunity to hang out with him on the sets – um, he was a very light presence on the set. He was he was fun. He was cracking jokes with people. He was very approachable. He was easy. He was open, and uh, it uh, that's the way it was. <laughs> and, 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 and that's just so nice to hear that. As you know, I, when I was growing up, you know, I'd see him more on. Uh, the odd couple and uh, later Quincy and I, I always just you know really liked the characters he played he was believable and you know here it is you know you're you're, you're taking us back like 10 years or, or you know about 10 years earlier and you know, just giving us more insight into Jack Klugman you know it's just well, a really neat that story. last that last kind of little statement from me was really referring to Rod Serling, but yes, <laughs> Klugman was, was wonderful. He was great in everything he ever did. You know, I never saw him, you know, Oscar Madison was a great character. He was, he was really funny and, and I've never seen him give a bad performance. No, he was, he was great. And, 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 and the you know, 1950s and, uh, and like 59 or early 60s, and as and, and Nick covers that in his book, uh, you know, really well about this transitional period. And you, know, you get all these, uh, you know, like the golden age of TV that you mentioned with the uh, uh, Alfred Hitchcock presents, you know, you're in that, the Twilight Zone, all, you know, just all, all these great shows that you know, we're looking back on. And you know you're right there in the middle of all, all that. What what was going on? Was it just like this new medium that was uh, developing? What what was in the air? <laughs> <laughs> um, smog, if you were in LA. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I can't I can't tell you what, you know why there was a, a, a classic 
age of television. I mean, it, the bottom line there is that a lot of people came from feature films and a lot of people came from from New York and the theater, and uh, they they were inspired, and there were only three networks, and, uh, you know, things weren't as watered down as, as they were, and there were a lot of great... I, I, let me, I will stress this. There were a lot of great character actors who worked prolifically for decades, and you've you've lost... A, a pretty large percentage of that, I think, for the last 20 or 30 years, you know, we've mm-hmm. kind of drifted into this. Everybody's really great. Not everybody, but I mean, you know, a, a lot of people are just really attractive. So they get the jobs, you know, oh, she's hot. Oh, he's a hunk. However you want to phrase it. I don't want to be politically incorrect, but you don't see the kind of character faces and the the, uh, the quirky actors that you had seen for maybe you know the first 20 years of television uh and that's that's something that that certainly resonates when you go back and look at all those old shows whether they're comedies or whether they're dramas whether they're fantasy or whether they're medical shows or lawyer shows you know there are a lot of great actors that uh, really worked quite often and i just happened to be very prolific and i was not tied down to a series for the first uh you know, six years of my work. So I got to go from, you know, one show to the next, to the next, to the next, one genre to the next. Uh, whereas somebody like Ronnie Howard was, you know, kind of tied down to Andy Griffith. So he, uh, I mean, you know, the bulk of the work uh, in terms of people our age was was pretty much divided between Ron and me. And, uh, you know, once he was working 10 months a year on, or nine months a year on Andy Griffith, you know that's that kind of gave me more of a opportunity to to do so many different type of uh, roles. It was good. It was a good thing, and <laughs> you know things worked out for him okay. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Well, Bill, you just you just happen to be be really good too. Let's not let's not kid ourselves. You, I, I I'm amazed at some of the performances you gave as as a little kid. Uh, really. Um. So I mean, I'm not just blowing smoke. That's I mean we're talking about a seven year old. You know, doing these shows, and I mean, something like a Praise of Pip. I think you were just terrific in that, and it's just, um, I'm amazed at that, what you did at that age. So, kudos to well, you. Well, thank you. I mean, I really appreciate it. And again, you know, sometimes you can look back on things and really see them reasonably objectively. That after so many decades, and you know, like I said earlier, everybody has has their gifts. Some kids can throw a a, a softball straight and fast and pitch. You know, some kids can dance really well or they're gymnasts or whatever i just happen to uh you know be able to make believe and remember dialogue and hit my marks without looking for them (laughs) (laughs) okay and you know we're down to about uh, two and a half minutes or so uh bill do you have you know you have the october 5th uh uh technology uh, t- thing going on uh, at the uh, uh, Twilight Zone convention on October 5th. Do, do you have anything else you want to plug, your Lost in Space book? Uh, uh, I, you know, I mean, I, listen, it, Google me and people can find out what they find. Right now I'm a producer on the Ancient Aliens television show. I've got a new album out. Um you know everything's fine i mean i'm 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 very prolific and and i get to to work in multiple arenas of entertainment and i'm 
you know, seemingly healthy and happy. My family as well. All is good. good. Very cool. Okay. And uh, uh, Nick, do you want to uh, plug your book and anything else about the conference? We're down to a minute. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I'm sure it'll be a big success because the Twilight Zone is eternal, and I look forward to uh, <laughs> FaceTiming with you guys on my old iPhone 6. <laughs> All right. Well, we're, we're looking forward to it, too, Bill. It's going to be a good time. Yeah. And like you say, Nick, if, if that things don't work out, I'll pick up that toy telephone and call you. All right. That's that <laughs> work. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Uh, thanks, guys. Best of luck with everything, and, and Nick, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Bill. Bye. Thank you, Bill. You're welcome. Thank you, Mark. All right. Take care. Bye. All right. Hey, uh, thank you, Nick. Uh, That should be about the end of the show. Uh, Really appreciate it. Uh, And just want to remind the listeners, uh, Rod Serling, his life, work, and imagination is Nick Parisi's book. Uh, Get it if you like the Twilight Zone. You want to know. Uh, all, all about the series, Rod's, uh, you know, legacy. This is, that's a book for you. And we will see you Thursday night, uh, ten to midnight with Mark Dewisiak. And Barbara, I think we can kind of wrap up the show now.